Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up the world, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. And we have the author of Mail Shop Matt Cost here. Now, hmm, Pete from the back cover. Sometimes bad genes need to be stamped out and good ones need to be forced, Bridget Engel said. Well, that's cool. There's really no difference between mice and human beings when it comes to genes. She wore a gray suit and blonde hair in the style of Hillary Clinton and it made it popular. Wouldn't you like to know what? This is really interesting because Clay Wolf is stuck with this problem. So, good morning, Matt, and welcome to MJ Network. And this book is really cool. Let me tell you, people, you're going to want to read it. You seriously want to read it. Well, good morning, Fran. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm glad you're here. Now, question. How come you chose this scientific topic as the basis of your storyline? Because this is an original one. So the minute I opened the book, I couldn't put it down. Yeah, you know, I, I, I often find my stories in the news. And I had come across an article about genome editing and how it was being done on, you know, mice and animals, and that the science is actually there, that it could be done on human beings, and actually Mm. has been done to some extent in various places. So it's like, wow, that's fascinating. It is. It's, It's very fascinating. And wouldn't it be nice if you could actually create the perfect person? I wonder how many people would want the perfect spouse, too. What can I say? <laughs> you know, so, it's, it's is, a funny thing. You know, it's a very ethical yeah. question, and it's I, I, yeah. I struggle with it. You know, is it a bad thing or not? This is this is very true. So we have Clay, Bailey, Crystal, and your team at Wolf Baker. How did you create them, and what exactly do each of them do? Um, well, this is my third book in the series. And what was sort of interesting is I have another series based in my hometown, so it's a real town. Mm. And in this book, I created a fictional town in the state of Maine called Port Essex. And into this fictional town, I was able to create this cast of characters. So, you know, you have the protagonist, Clay Wolf, who is an you know, ex-Boston homicide detective who only in his mid-30s, becomes a little jaded and cynical and moves home to Port Essex to, uh, on one hand, take care of his aging grandfather, and on the other hand, he opens a PI business. And on the first day, he's looking for a receptionist, and Bailey Baker walks in the door and becomes his front desk person in book one. Now, Bailey Baker is going to grow through the books so that by this point she is a partner in the business and also a mm. PI. Okay, so who requested their services and why? And what did they claim was the reason about this mouse being stolen? Oh, the poor thing. Uh, the chief uh, of the CFO of Johnson Laboratories comes in to hire Clay Wolf and Bailey Baker. Uh, he is, his name is Rex Bolton, and they've had an attempted theft of a mouse, which seems like an incredibly innocuous beginning to a thriller, but 
uh, things are going to ratchet up from there as we discover more and more about this mouse. So that, that, that's kind of the onus. He, they're hired to find out who tried to steal a mouse from Johnson Laboratories in Port Essex, Maine. Oh, one up here, the poor mouse. I didn't even want to look at a mouse. Where I used to live, where I used to live, they used to come out of nowhere. Like, oh my God. Um, and after learning about the hunter virus, forget that. <laughs> you don't want to see them. Yeah. So they have a thing called shame. That means it's fasting. That means it's fasting. What is the purpose of that? Uh, they call these my shame. S H A I M. Yeah. And it's a superhuman advanced intelligence mice is mm -hmm. what it stands for. And uh, do you want me to explain now a little bit of how that process happens and how they become superhuman and advanced intelligence? Yeah, I think people would want to know that. I think if my mother was alive, she seriously would want to know that, how she could create me to be like that, too. Really. <laughs> well, they are taking... Uh, mice and human beings share 97% of the same DNA. So mice and human beings at the very core of their being are actually very similar. So at Johnson Laboratories, they are injecting and changing the genome in the embryo. So in the first month of pregnancy, they go in and they actually change the DNA and, you know, they figured out, you know, traits that with the mice, uh, that the smarter mice that did better have certain DNA genes and they put those into the mice. And some mice are bigger and stronger than others and they have certain genome DNA. So they take that and they put it into the mice as well. And, uh, often they will use human DNA to put into these mice. And so they are able to make bigger, stronger mice. And one of the reasons that they're really doing this uh, is to eradicate diseases. And the idea is they will be able to take this to human beings and possibly solve cancer. They're already at a point where they can change the genomes of human beings and take away diabetes and other diseases like that. Wouldn't that be nice? Too bad I couldn't fix my mother who had Alzheimer's. Exactly. You that know, the, yeah. You know, it there, was horrible. I mean, I, I, I call this Johnson Laboratories, but there's actually... Yeah. There's laboratory in Maine called Jackson Laboratories, or mm -hmm. Jacks, where they are really doing this with mice. So, oh, God. You know, the basis is real. Uh, recently, I guess just last year, they sent some of their mice into space because oh, wow. uh, one of the problems that astronauts have is when they go into space, they lose bone density. And so they're trying to use these mice to solve how you could overcome losing bone density when you're in outer space if you were to maybe colonize Mars or something like that. I would love to learn how to do that in real life. Seriously. <laughs> be a lot less than you know, bone density, which which I postponed because I decided my bones are however they are, leave me alone. Don't care. And it works better for me. <laughs> it works fine for me. So why was Clay hired? And how do we know from the start that there's something very strange? What was the end goal? I like Clay. Uh, you know, Clay is hired on the surface value to find out who tried to steal one of these shame mice, superhuman advanced mm -hmm. intelligence mice, because mm -hmm. there is a fear that perhaps it was done by the Chinese or the Russians or some other nefarious organization that is trying to steal the science being put into these mm. mice. And, uh, you know, he's forced to sign a, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, and, um, you know, he thinks that this is all a little suspicious, and uh, there seems to be something that's not being shared with him. And so he does have his suspicions. 
This is so cool. So why did I like the other character? Why does he needed Grandpa's help and explain the documents? Grandpa's just cool. Uh, you know, first of all, Clay Wolf is orphaned at the age of eight when his parents die in a car accident, mm. as well as his grandmother. So his grandpops, as he calls them, uh, raises Clay Wolf from the age of eight on and helps him every step of the way and is a very important figure in his life. Mm. And um, so this is one of the reasons why Clay Wolf decided to return home to Port Essex because his grandpops had taken a fall and is getting older. Mm. He's 84 years uh-huh. old now. But for his entire, you know, 45-year career, his grandpa was a lawyer and a very good lawyer. So mm. he involves his grandpops at this point to look over the NDA and make sure that it wasn't going to be something that was going to get Clay and Bailey into trouble. I don't want to get Clay into trouble. We have to bring him back again because I like this guy. So... <laughs> Here's another interesting character, people. <laughs> when she meet Victoria, people, she's very sneaky. So why is Victoria Haas, and why is she so concerned about Clay, and why did she want him to achieve her goals? And uh, watch out for this one. Yeah, you know, Clay Wolf runs into a former girlfriend that he had in high mm-hmm. school for just a few months named Victoria Haas, and she's now returned to Port Essex as well and sort of looks him up and, you know, asks him over to catch up on old times. She's Mm. inherited her parents' wealth and has done very well in the business world for herself, so she's very wealthy, and she seems to have designs upon Clay, and uh, she's a beautiful woman, and uh, Clay becomes a little enraptured with her. Uh, but mm-hmm. as you suggest, there's, there's there's some other things behind the scenes that work here. We can't tell them what it is because that would ruin the fun of reading the book, which I think right. everybody should. It's been a while since I've said, like, everybody should read it. Yeah, well, this one you got to read because you won't believe it until you read it. So um, let's see. Who is Westy and who is he following and how did this create a second storyline? I'm going to leave out the next question because I don't want to give that away. Yeah, well, Weston Beck, better known as Westy, uh, to his friends, is his nickname, is Clay's Wolf's best friend from third grade on. They did everything together throughout their school years. Clay Wolf is going to be the quarterback on the state championship football team, and Westy is going to be the running back. And, Mm. uh, you know, they had each other's backs and got in fights together and, you know, drank their first beer together. And uh, so they were very close. And upon graduating high school, though, they took two different paths. Clay Wolf went off to Boston to go to college to become a homicide detective eventually. And Westy joined, uh, uh, became a SEAL and went to SEAL training and spent Two, two tours in Afghanistan. So he's a very tough fellow. But after two tours in Afghanistan, he returns mm. to Port Essex and becomes a fisherman. And when Clay returns, you know, they kind of get back together and, you know, hang out quite a bit and enjoy each other's company. And he, so Westy happens to see a fishing boat go by um, that, seems to have come from a a Russian ocean liner going by in the ocean. So he has Mm -hmm. a suspicion and follows this. And uh, it's going to turn out to be not quite what is expected. Again, to not give anything away, but he's going to run into a person who is very evil and uh, Mm. starts off by, you know, putting a hole in his head by hitting him with a hammer. I know, and I wanted to put a hole in the person's head for hurting him. So I like Westy. <laughs> Nerve. 
Well, if you didn't have a conflict of somebody getting hurt, then people would be bored reading it and go like, oh, everything good's happening. There's no such thing as perfect anywhere in any kind of a novel. So sad. So, yeah, you know, Mary I mean, Jordan, why was her story? Go on. One of the things that I have found in my writing is you have to occasionally hurt or even kill some of the good guys to make it more real. Yeah. I've, I've, I've made a lot of angry people for various people that I've killed. Actually, the fourth book in this series is coming out in December. It's going to be called Cosmic Trap. And just Ooh, to give cool. you a little heads up, somebody we know and like very well is killed in that book. That's no fun. You know, <laughs> Bill Margolin did that to me with The Darkest Place. He called off a character that's a prime character that everybody's upset about because the main character really needed this person. And he said it was getting boring with him. I go, no, it wasn't. You could have livened it up. <laughs> so I, I was literally in tears when I read the third chapter. I said, you killed them off. How could you do this to me? He thought it was cool. So I, I, I have another mystery series called Mainly Mysteries, and the very first book is Mainly Power. And I kill somebody in that book that people still come up to me in the street and say, I hate you for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. So why was Mary Jordan's story dangerous to be published? And what's this with Area 38? Um, Mary Jordan is a reporter at the daily newspaper in Port Essex and uh, works for a good friend of Clay Wolf's, Marie Cloutier, who is the editor there. And she is gathering information on a story, but mm. then she comes up missing. And one of the things that we're trying to uncover throughout the course of the book is what was mm. the story she was working on and what were yeah. the details of it and what indeed did happen to her. So she comes up missing and uh, Clay Wolf. Uh, realizes that it might be attached to this case that he's working on the genome editing of mice at Johnson Laboratories. So he starts investigating her disappearance and what, indeed, the story was that she was going to write. All I know is that the people at Johnson & Johnson may not be too happy, but we don't care. <laughs> I never even thought of that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that, but then again, with their vaccine, never, <laughs> what can I say? So who is Kalinda and why was Billy involved with her at Johnson's lab? Not a good thing. Uh, Kalinda is a very famous pop star, yeah. Uh, yeah. musician, vocalist, and she comes uh, to Port Essex for a month to vacation Port Essex and, you know, the months of July and August are probably about the best places to live in the world because of the weather is just perfect and whatnot. You know, the winter might not be so good, but this pop star rents a house in Port Essex, and she engages the services of Bailey Baker um, to be a bodyguard at times when her mm. own bodyguard is not available as she is brought along. So on the surface, again, that's what, the, what what brings her here. As we dig further into it, we're going to find mm -hmm. that Kalinda perhaps is doing some sound bites and gigs for Johnson Laboratories as well. Mm -hmm. So, again, that weaves into the major thread of the story. Well, we're not going to tell them what that is, but there's a term. <laughs> Could you define... C-R-I-S-P-R, and how did you create the acronym, and is this real kind of research? Um, you know, I did not create the acronym. It is real research, and there is such That's what I a thing as, as CRESPR out there. And, uh, you know, I dug into it as well as I could. Science is not my strongest suit. But, you know, it is the study of, you know, genomes and DNA, and it's an advanced technology to be able to examine 
these, you know, microscopic genomes mm. and whatnot to better understand it and perhaps to change and arrange and uh, create the ability to create superhumans if, yeah. if it was deemed ethical and moral to do so. My mother would say yes. I'm serious. <laughs> And my family, my aunt would probably say, use my niece. No, I'm serious. It was scary. So how would someone, I've dealt with uh, students, and I taught sixth grade. The first class was the class from you know where, and I straightened them out. But the second two classes, the second class was super, super bright to the point that I had to really get smart. Every night I would read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever, and they couldn't use the typical reading material. They were super smart. And I know because I know what they're doing now, and they're still super smart. So how would someone deal with a superior and overly intelligent child? There's a program called Sheldon, the genius child. Um, I've watched that. The kid knows everything, and the teachers get intimidated because he's never wrong. He's about 12, 13. So how would this child socialize with children or adults? He has trouble just talking to his parents. So how would someone deal with a super child, child that's super and overly intelligent? That'd be interesting. And you know, I mean, my my students were know, smart, mouse, but I don't think they were geniuses. Well, some of them were. Now, mousetrap doesn't really get into uh, the superhuman, super smart children or mm-hmm. whatnot. But I think you know, as in anything else, what we're dealing with is. Mm-hmm. Would it be a good thing to make children super smart? Because chances are they're going to lose out on certain things. Like, you mm-hmm. know, the young Sheldon that you talk about is not really able to interact with his peers at that age. Um, you know, may, later may, in life he's yeah. going to find his group of people in the Big Bang Theory, but, you know, it, it, it proves to be a very difficult childhood for him. So was it good that he was super smart, or was it bad? You know, it's a, it's a conundrum, and I can see both sides of that question. Yeah. Well, my students were super smart. I had to make me super smart. I think that's what I got me super smart. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I would. I had to be very sure of what I was reading. And you ever have a sixth grade class read To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, mine did. I got in trouble for that, but it was worth it. It was seriously worth it. Because they asked questions of me, and that was really it kept me kept me on my toes. But they were super smart. I don't know if they were genius quality, but they can interact with people. But some of them, till this day, can't. So why did you create the scene in the bar, and who was involved in that, and why? Uh, which particular scene in the bar are you referring to? Uh, one of the failings, perhaps, of Clay Wolf is he spends too much time in bars. <laughs> mm. it, it, well. Are you referring to the one where they get in the brawl with some people yeah. that they are? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things is is there's some fishermen and uh, a, a rough crowd at a seedy bar, and when they go to try and dig in about somebody that they have questions about, which is a friend of theirs who uh, might be connected with all of this, uh, mm. it turns into this large brawl and the fishermen and, you know, play and, you know, get in a big tussle and the whole place sort of erupts. And uh, But it's kind of just another day in this bar where fights are kind of a common thing. So this, this, this is one of the rougher bars that Clay does not usually frequent. So what is what is Black Lab? What exactly is that? The Black Lab, uh, there are on the surface 37 labs at Johnson Laboratory that are funded mm. by different uh, investors, and each one is headed up by, you know, the head of that research team doing that particular research. And the Black Lab is actually, and they name each of the labs after the person who's heading them up. 
So a gentleman by the name mm. of Martin Black is the head of the Black Lab. Mm. So that's where it gets its name. And it's at the Black Lab that they are doing the genome testing on the DNA of mm -hmm. mice to try and eradicate diseases on the surface, but as well looking into making smarter and stronger mice. I have an odd question I just put about this. If they could eradicate all these diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's, um, cholesterol disease, everything, how do you think the pharmaceutical companies would feel about that? Because then no one would need all those medicines unless they're going to give them one pill to cure everything. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought and question for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I think it might be sort of like the idea that the technology has been out there to get cars that get 100 miles to the gallon of gasoline, yeah. but it's been bought squashed by the big oil companies. I wonder if indeed the big pharmaceutical companies would squash, mm -hmm. you know, eradicating diseases because it would bite, you know, cut into their bottom dollar. So I, I can't say for sure. I try not to be too cynical, but I think they very well might. Not only won't they, but you know what gets me is that they create all these medicines and the doctor prescribes them. And I, I, I look up everything, including ointments. And if I don't like what's in it, I won't take it. And every single medication has bad side effects. So sometimes it's better to keep the disease without the, without the medicine. It makes it, you know, wonder sometimes. Oh, because, absolutely. Because Actually, the first, the first book in this series was called Wolf Trap, and it dealt with heroin being smuggled through lobster traps. But then wow. we get the tie-in that perhaps this uh, heroin being smuggled through lobster traps is also part of a uh, large pharmaceutical country uh, a company that has uh, kind of worked in both ends of the drug, the legal and the illegal drug, mm -hmm. which kind of produces the, the same uh, result. Uh, so, uh, because fentanyl is in, you know, being laced into the heroin and it's very dangerous, but fentanyl at the same time, in very small doses, is used in many drugs that we take. All I know is that the booster shot, the vaccine, two of my, two of my doctors, yeah. I got really nervous. I got sick from all three. Forget it. I was out to lunch. And thank God my antibodies are high, so I don't need the fourth one yet. Thank God. Not yet anyway. And my doctor came in on Tuesday to take care of something, and then he went home in the afternoon, and I said, oh, my God, I hope he doesn't have COVID. He said that he had the injection over a week and a half ago, the second booster, and he said he hasn't felt well since. He said, it's, that's how much wow. of a disaster. Yeah, my gastro doctor said the same thing when he called me to ask me something else. And he said, he said, forget it. He said, if you don't need to take it, you don't want to. They were both out for, like, forget it. That's how bad. So they're creating wow. stuff that's supposed to cure you, but it makes you worse. I'm just wondering if they didn't add something in the second booster that wasn't in the first. Please, I wouldn't have been in the hospital the second time. So what are micro-injections and what is their purpose? And how and why, Veronica, watch out for come into play with them. And what about Kalinda and John? Um, well, one of the difficult things about eradicating diseases in human beings is having a wide enough pool to study from. And so... A microinjection is going to be changing the DNA or the genome in the embryo stage in the first month of uh, conception mm. uh, of before it is, uh, you know, there's the embryo stage, then there's the fetus stage, and then it, it becomes a baby. Uh, so the microinjection is changing the genome mm. at that level, which is going to cause all future offspring to carry that same genome. So it's not just affecting that one, in this case, baby mouse, 
but any future offspring of that baby mouse will have the changes that have been made at this genome level because of the micro injection. But, you know, one of the hard things is to gather enough data of a wide enough pool mm. of human beings to do that. And there are, we, we, we do uncover some ways that that might be done in the book, and uh, I won't get into those. That, that's scary. But what would happen if the parent had one child that's, you know, above average or average, and then she has a genius child? So how is that average child going to deal with the genius child? It's kind of like, how are they going to be related? Uh, yeah, I would think it would be certainly difficult. Doesn't young yeah. Sheldon have a brother or sister yeah. in that show? And, you, you yes, and he can't barely talk to his parents because they don't get it after what he says. The grandmother seems to be the only one that likes to interact with him. Yeah, so, you know, I would certainly think that if you had siblings, there's going to be pluses and minuses again to both. You know, the non-genius one will probably be involved with more activities and have more friends yeah. and uh, whatnot and, you know, will suffer not having as much intellect as the genius, but, you know, that's kind of the real moral conundrum around the whole thing as to whether it is ethical to do or not. I don't know, but I'm sure someday we're going to find out, which is really well, scary. It has been done in China. Yeah. And the scientists mm. who performed this on human babies uh, oh, God. You know, sort of been shunned for having done this, but there are, I believe, two babies that are now probably 10 years old who have had genome editing done at the embryo <gasps> stage of their lives, and uh, there's not a lot of information. It's pretty hush-hush about what's going on with it, so uh, we just don't really know. One of the really interesting things that I delve into in this book is that there is no real hard and fast law that says it is illegal to do genome editing on human beings. And it's, mm. you know, the FDA says, advises against it, but they have no real clout to say you can't do this. They just say you shouldn't do this. That That is really scary. And I would be wondering, I'd love to talk to those 10-year-old children. I'd love to know what they really think. I'd love to know if yeah. they really realized what happened to them. If they somebody actually told them or they just said, gee, we were born really smart, how lucky we are. It must be no fun to never make a mistake. It's, and, it's and more fun I don't to learn. Believe, I don't believe that their genome editing changed their intelligence. I think it was just done at a level for uh, maybe physicality and eye color mm. and hair color and things like that. So I, I don't... You know, on the surface, they don't really have the ability to know what DNA or what genomes make human beings smarter because mm. there's not enough wide enough pool. And I suggest some reasons how that might be obtained in my book. But, you know, as of now, as far as we know, Nobody has the ability to know what that genome is so that to actually make that change. I wonder what would happen. This is my my genius coming through. You know, people have Alzheimer's and people as they age. I wonder if somebody that was older, you know, like thirties or forties and figured I want I don't wanna my I don't want my mind to go. I wonder how that would work if they wanted something genetically altered. Could they do that to somebody that's an adult to make them really smarter or prevent, you know, their brains from, you know, diminishing for dementia or Alzheimer's? On the surface, no. Um, as far as I can tell, the science usually uh, is restricted now to uh, uh, pre, pre-being born. So in the embryo or fetus stage is when they're able to make these changes. Um, but I'm going to say that there's a lot of things that we don't always know. And I think that certainly the science and technology probably exists out there. And if you're 
you know, much like in Area 38 of Johnson mm-hmm. Laboratory where secret mm-hmm. testing is done and uh, certain procedures are being done. I would not doubt that there are labs in the mm-hmm. world, in the United States, where if you're 40 years old and you want to take out the gene that causes Alzheimer's and you have the money to pay mm-hmm. for it, that you could get that done. I, I think it's quite possible. I wish I would have known it, but then my mother would still be trying to make me perfect. Seriously. <laughs> so, before I forget, this is really exciting. Tuesday, be there at 10 o'clock. I think I wrote 10 o'clock. Um, Eastern, Janie and Krantz, Amanda Quick, When She Dreams. So we're going to be talking about ESP and lucid dreams and dreamwalking. It should be interesting. Um, she actually enacts some of those things in the book. On the 28th, One Will Too Many. And on the second, someone we all know and love, Don Bentley, Hostile Intent. On the fourth, Jeffrey Wells. On the, on the 10th, Stephen Manchester. And on the 12th, the reason why they say I'm smart, seriously, is my professor from Lehman College when I got my reading master's a million years ago, whenever that was. And Dr. Cavuto and I are going to be talking about how to get children and adults to understand what they read, and we're going to refer to the psychology and pedagogy of reading from 1843 or a little bit later. So that's just some of what's happening next month. Now, how did you create your final scenes and the revelations without telling what happened? Uh, it's a very difficult question to answer because <laughs> without without revealing, you know, what happened, but uh, I, I can delve into the writing process. Uh, I usually plot out, you know, kind of what's going to happen at the end of the book, but more often than not, by the halfway point of the book, it's gone in another direction and it's geared to something else. So, you know, it becomes just sort of like a car journey where you're you're lost and taking turns and uh, each day I think about what's going to happen and I say this is going to make sense. And so the, the final scenes are a work in progress every day of the book until we get to those final scenes. So that's kind of the creation of them. Yeah, well, those final scenes is, like, really great. And this whole book was really great. Like I said, I read it, and I got ice cream. That means I read it in two hours and couldn't put it down. Because I really didn't know what you, what, what you, was, what you were going to do, what the, what the book was about. I had no idea. And then I'm looking at the back of the book, and I go, wait a minute. So what is the difference between uh, eugenics and stem cell research or stem cells? Well, the eugenics movement was very big in the United States back in the early 20th century, 1910s and 1920s, where the thought process was to sterilize inferior human beings. And this was usually done to women which is, you know, a terrible thing in itself. But if a woman was thought to uh, perhaps carry a disease or have a diabetes or a cancer or maybe was not that Mm -hmm. smart, and there were even cases where it was thought that the woman was promiscuous and maybe slept with several men, that they Mm -hmm. would be sterilized so that they could not have offspring and therefore the bad parts of them, and that's not my word, that's that's air quotes around the bad parts of them, (laughs) Uh, in the scientist's mind and in the United States was, you know, going to end with them and through eliminating people with supposed bad genes, uh, mm-hmm. It would make the remaining, you know, human race smarter, better, stronger, healthier. So it was kind of the opposite of what genome editing is, 
It was to get rid of the inferior. And uh, this is going to go out of favor in World War II because it's a big part of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi movement. And they believe strongly in that and take it to a new level where they start actually exterminating human beings that they deem to be inferior, again, air quotes, uh, because it's not that they were inferior anyway. So it kind of goes underground, but it's still going to be practiced in the United States until the you know late 20th century. There is a case, I believe, in New York, Fran, in maybe 1979, where you know, women were still being sterilized because it was felt that they carried inferior genes. So this this movement was only outlawed in the last 30 years and uh, is no longer practiced. And I surmise that the movement has transferred from eugenics to genome editing. And instead of eradicating the what is considered to be bad traits of human beings, and I don't know who the moral god that decides that is, they are now trying to create traits that are stronger and better and more advanced and put them into human beings. I know that my grandmother was a victim of Hitler, and she was in a concentration camp, and they sterilized her. She's lucky she she wasn't killed. But I didn't know that until... My somebody told me that my grandmother was really my aunt and that my real grandmother was somebody else. It got convoluted, but I didn't care because my grandmother was my grandmother. She was like the coolest person on this planet. So it's scary. So what happens, you know, as an educator, you got to be seven steps ahead of these children. Trust me. And when you're dealing with gifted classes like I did, the second and third year, you got to be super smart. So what happens if a child, I mean, I had a friend in uh, elementary school that went down to college at 12, which was lost, he got lost in space as far as, you know, dealing with other people and socialization. So what happens if a teacher gets a class that's really that smart and they can't do it? What if the class just proves the teacher, like, we know more than you? That's kind of hard. And back then, I mean, there were, you know, IGC intellectually gifted classes but not that gifted so what do you do then even today because I don't think a lot of the teachers are up on the stuff that I was up on back then either right I mean I I think that's the moral conundrum I I don't know if you know this but I also taught 7th and 8th grade for 10 years social studies in my case and uh, you know I know that there were students that especially in like the areas of mathematics were just so far beyond that they would go mm-hmm. to the high school and from seventh grade they would go to the high school to take their math class and mm-hmm. then they would be you know come back and have their other classes at the junior high school because probably they could have been advanced to the high school but you know on intellect but their maturity was not there, so it would have become a real problem to have friends and, mm. you know, peers and whatnot, and they just weren't emotionally mature enough to handle the high school. So kind of trying to do a, a partial advancement without mm. not advancing the students too far uh, for their maturity level it was kind of the solution that we came up with in Brunswick, but I, I, I really don't know what the right solution is. It's it's scary. My niece took college prep and in high school. She's a slight genius, too. She's really smart. But it had happened. So seriously speaking, there are more legal, scientific, and ethical issues to be addressed and if this becomes reality. So would it, would a lab get funded for this? Would they fund, give funds for this? Or would the person that wants to do it have to fund it themselves? The FDA is kind of in charge of this because it's the Food and Drug Administration, and they would not fund it. Their stance is now that it is wrong to do this um, and Mm -hmm. that you should not do this, and they would not fund it. But they don't have the power um, 
to make it illegal. And as in many things in you know mm-hmm. life, the science is outracing the legality and the the court. So you know the science is ahead of the ability for people to say no, you can't do it. So if you're you know a wealthy billionaire like Elon Musk, and you wanted to you know fund uh, a scientist to make superior human beings, there's no law that says you can't do it. Mm. And it would put the investor way out ahead on the science and uh, might become quite lucrative for them. Or they might just be interested uh, in creating their own superhuman baby. That that is scary. I don't know. I know I'm very smart. But I don't think I want to be so smart that I don't want to that I don't have the need don't have the need the ability to look things up, and which which is you know more fun to learn and to not to know everything before it's going to happen or understand everything, but you have to in this day and age. So actually, I'm learning from my niece who's taking respiratory therapy, and my other one that I helped graduate nursing school that the teachers are just giving assignments and they expect you to do them without explaining it. So that's making it kind of hard for the average student also, because it's just different now, so that this pandemic has really taken its toll. So what is next for Clay and Bailey, and will they each forgive each other for what they endured in this novel? <laughs> you know, the, the, this, again, is the third book in the novel, and they... Mm-hmm. Uh, have, you know, a, a, a deep sort of attachment to each other that maybe they are actually in love with each other, but they yeah. carry too much emotional baggage for them to quite get together. Um, and so they have flirted with this many a time and it's uh, never quite worked out and uh, my next book, as I said in this series, comes out in mm-hmm. December, and it's called Cosmic Trap. And in this book, they are going to be um, they're going to be hired by a Washington D.C. task force to uh, investigate mysterious sighting aerial phenomena over Port mm-hmm. Essex. And this again is taken directly from the news of the day, Um, Mm -hmm. there is a task force that Congress has assembled to investigate a lot of unexplained aerial phenomena that has been happening in the skies that fighter jets have Mm -hmm. been seeing, filmed, they have on camera, and it's the technology of these flying objects is beyond anything anybody knows. So is mm-hmm. it perhaps something that the Russians have come up with because, you know, <laughs> that is superior? Or is it actually aliens that, uh, you know, flying around in our airspace? Um, so this, these sightings are going to pop up in Port Essex, and Clay and Bailey are going to get involved uh, exploring and looking for these unexplained aerial phenomena happening in the skies of Maine. And they do forgive each other. Uh, they like each other too much to uh, go their separate ways, but they uh, carry too much emotional baggage perhaps to get together. But, uh, you know, maybe they'll work through that emotional baggage at some point and be able to uh, connect on a level other than just business partners and friends. Well, you never know. You never know. So what happens to Westy? Is he coming back in the next one? Yep, yep. Westy is back in the next one. He's, you know, he's the muscle for Clay with his ex-SEAL training. So when things, you know, get Mm -hmm. dicey, it's nice to have Westy to come in and he knows weapons and fighting and he's tough as anything. And uh, so... He's not only Clay's best friend in good times, but he's got his back in bad times. So, well, Wesley will be back. Who else is coming back? Um, you know, 
one person that's become a fan favorite of a lot of my readers is Crystal Landry. Mm-hmm. And Crystal Landry actually in Wolf Trap is a client and hires Clay Wolf and Bailey mm-hmm. Baker to investigate who is trafficking in um, heroin in the town of Port Essex. And by in the second book, Bailey Baker is going to become the lead investigator and partner in Wolf and Baker. So Crystal Landry is going to be hired as the receptionist, which is what mm. she is in the third book. And so Crystal will be back in book four. And, you know, as will Murphy, the, the ex-IRA um, Irish clam digger who hangs out in bars all day and therefore knows the underbelly of Port Essex and is a good source of information for Clay and uh, is also a friend, as well as the editor of the newspaper, Marie Cloutier, who is another good friend of Clay Wolfs and Bailey Bakers and uh, knows all the, 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 the better news of the town and area. That's interesting. And Grand Pops How did you will be come back. up with the title, Mousetrap? I like Grand Pops. <laughs> um, you know, my my series, I, I'm branding it with the word trap in all of them. So I have Wolf Trap, Mind mm-hmm. Trap, and because this one is really revolves around superhuman advanced intelligence mice, I thought mm-hmm. that mousetrap is a nice play on words to, you know, say that the focus is about mice, but obviously much bigger than that is what we're going to discover. So mousetrap was just kind of a nice nice fit in there. So where can everybody find out about you and all of your books and get all of them? And for those of you that haven't read this, you need to read it because this is really mind-boggling, seriously. Well, as long as you know my name, you can usually find me, Matt Cost. So my website is mattcost.net. Um, you know, I can be found on at my website, at my publisher, Encircle Publications. Uh, I can be found there, or, you know, you can find me on Amazon, or, you know, I certainly, if you're interested in buying books, I would suggest that you go into your local bookstore and if they don't have the book, they can order it for you. And uh, so all, all of those are possibilities. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram if you look up Matt Cost. Well, everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. I think it's, I don't know what the temperature is. It's something, 40-something degrees, but that's okay. We can handle it. Matt, thank you so very, very much. This is a really good topic. I wonder what other people would say about it. This is great. Everyone, have a great day. And do an act of kindness, and maybe people will be more understanding. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Thank you, Fran. Thank you for having me on.